Good morning, everyone. I've been here over a year. <laughs> I'm going to have to raise this up just a tad because I'm not very tall. Well, listen, Happy New Year to everybody. How's that diet going? <laughs> You're killing it, aren't you? You're killing it right now. It's day two. Exercise is all, everything's good. So just keep your eye on the scale. Hallelujah. I did not plan on preaching this morning. I did not plan on at all preaching. And then I got a phone call. I heard about Pastor Delmer. And Pastor Delmer, get well. If you're watching this, uh, I hate the word bug. But <laughs> if you have one. Get rid of it <laughs> soon. But my sermon this morning is, is not from a series. It's not from a, uh, any book I've been reading. It's just kind of some thoughts that I've been sort of gelling on recently, some personal thoughts. And this is going to seem so basic and so fundamental that it will seem shallow to some, I'm sure. But I don't believe it's either shallow or simple. But I believe it's a key. What I'm going to talk about is a key to kind of understanding what your relationship with God is supposed to look like. Amen. And I think a good way to start the new year is starting it the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> Not what you wish would be or what someone's told you it should be, but uh, how it ought to be. There's a, there, there's a, it's very evident that the world we live in now is not the way things ought to be. It's not the way God planned. What's happening around us is not, this is not paradise. This is not utopia. This is a fallen, this is a broken world. But in the midst of a fallen and broken world, God has sent his son to us, Jesus. And through him, we have life. And we have life more abundantly. And that life more abundantly is not dependent upon the circumstances that we see around us. It's not dependent upon the political systems. It's not dependent upon the economy. Believe it, it's not. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning is something I think is a great way to start this new year. And that is with a fresh, a new level and a fresh understanding of what what we're doing in this room this morning. Why are we here? Why are we gathering in a building and singing songs to an invisible God? Why are we praying to a God we cannot see? Why are we doing all of this? What's going on here? A number of years ago, I was sitting in a class, a pastor's seminar uh, over in Van Nuys, California. Pastor Jack Hayford used to do these um, SPN, Spirit School of Pastoral Nurture, and uh, I, I went to all of those. And in one of those, I remember early on, he asked a question of about 45 pastors that were there from around the world. He asked the questions, the question, why do you think God made humankind? Why do you believe God made us? Why, why did God, out of all the things he could have done and, and created, why did he create us? And it was one of those questions that you think you know, you think, well, you know, he needs, he, well, the church, the army of God, the, and it's one of those things you think you know, but the more I listen, I realize that's, that's something that's pretty important to know, pretty important to have a, a handle on. Why is there an earth with people on it, made in his image, and yet made in his image, created for him? But we have a moral liberty to make choices that can open the door to the possibility of sin and pain and untold misery. Why create us and then allow us the possibility of being lost? Think about that for a moment. What is this really about? And so today I just felt like I wanted to remind you at the start of a new year, I can't even look at 2022 and think about writing it. <laughs> I think I'm in Star Trek. What? 
I just feel like God wants to remind us about what his original purposes were for us, and I think that can help you make a fresh start this year. I'm going to be using uh, some verses. I'm not going to even read them right away. I'm going to come to them later from the book of Hosea, chapter 2. So if you want to start finding Hosea now, get a head start, you can. But I want to talk to you about just a couple of things this morning. One of those, I want you to think about the family picture that is God's plan. The family picture that is God's plan. Because what kind of a connection do you think God was looking for when he created us? What was, it, what was his need there to, to have us? Or are we just like some sort of a cosmic ant farm? You have an ant farm when you were a kid, you buy them, you got two pieces of glass, the dirt's in there, the ants are in there, they're working away, and every now and then you can go, <laughs> trip their whole world up, and see them dig out. Is that, is that, is that what this is about? Is it, we're just God's entertainment because, you know, the universe doesn't have enough going on to keep him occupied. But why did he ever allow sin to be a part of the creation? Why put us in a paradise and then allow a creature like the serpent to have access to us, knowing what would happen if we gave in to him? It just seems like a cruel game. You're going to put us here in a paradise, give us everything we need, then you're going to put this possibility, this option here, that is a death option, and the whole option of sin is, you, is one we can eat, you, you struggle with to give it some thought. We're not deep thinkers much today, but if you do think about it, it's something that the church hasn't done us any favors here when you think about what sin even is. We've reduced sin down to all that nasty behavior that nasty bad people do. And we preach against that and we, go, we, we attack that. And, so, and it's all those things you do that make God really mad. A lot of people's theology is God's good, you're bad, stop it. <laughs> but the real concept of sin is something more substantial. Because sin's not a violation of God's government. Because God didn't create us to extend his government. So my sin's not violating his government. We weren't created in order to help God take over the universe. We're not little landlords, and we're not little warlords. And there are segments of the church today that are filled with all kinds of misconceptions about why God created us in the first place. Well, we're a spiritual army. God doesn't need an army. One angel killed 80,000 in the Old Testament. He doesn't need an army of little spiritual soldiers. Stay, get behind us, Lord, we got this. Play the music. He doesn't need us to fight battles for him. He didn't need a cadre of servants and workers and spiritual valets. We were never created to do something for God. We were created to be the people of God. We were created for him. For his pleasure, we were created. Thou hast created all things, Revelations 4, and for thy pleasure, they were created. That's why you were created. You weren't created to fight a war. You weren't created to, to, to work in, 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 on the farm. You were created to 
enjoy God and have God enjoy you. We were made for him. We weren't created to be a people who did work for God as much as we were created to be a people of God, for God. And the Bible tells us that he created us in hope. And that hope was that in creating us, that somehow, through all that would happen in our existence, that out of all of it, we would still choose to love him freely. We're not being commanded to love him or forced to love him or scared into loving him. He doesn't want that. He wants you to choose him because you want him. That we would, out of our own free will and independence, choose intimacy with God over worship of ourselves. That we would want to draw close to him in total union and relationship and put all of our trust in him. He's our foundation. He's our rock. He's our mighty fortress and, and God. And that's what he wants, for you to choose that freely. Well, the opposite of this would be that you would choose to separate yourself from him, diverge from him, and be independent and self-sufficient, which is the bulk of humanity that's made that choice. Which brings us to the real concept of what sin is. Sin is sin because it violates relationship, not rules. Sin violates relationship. God created us for a relationship. Sin broke the relationship. He's not mad because you're nasty. He's not mad at all. God's cry to us isn't an angry deity. It's a heartbroken father whose sons have chosen to go and daughters have chosen to go their own way and do it their way. We think sometimes it's all about God just hating our bad behavior. Your bad behavior is simply related to your lack of relationship. If you knew him like he wants you to know him, bad behavior would not be an issue because you would live differently. It's not just because he's a good God, but he's also a holy and a righteous God. And he hates anything that would capture my heart away from him. Whatever would come into my life that would misdirect my appetites, would cause me to look and be distracted from him as source and supply. Sin isn't just about bad behavior. Sin's broken relationships. It's about activities and attitudes that destroy family bonds, that blow up the love relationship between father and children. The Ten Commandments aren't about God giving us this rigid code and then standing back with his arms folded saying, well, I'm going to watch and see if you do this stuff or not because, you know, if this is the litmus test of my, your, your obedience is the litmus, if you'll bend to my will, if you'll bend to my will, then maybe I'll be good to you. Even the law was given, quote, that it may be well with you. The law wasn't given to cause you to walk a narrow line of behavior. The law was given to protect you from anything outside that line, anything beyond that boundary of his love, his care, and his relationship. The whole thing is about God wanting us to be in profound and deep relationship with him. How could we ever, how could we ever, you know, 
define it as anything but that? What would cause us to make it into rules or to, to, to make it into some sort of an institution? Or to, to, what would make us think that that's what he created us for, that that's what he needed? Somewhere in our faith, we have to get back to get a grasp of God's creation as a family photo. Because the Bible presents us first as souls created by God, having breath breathed into us by God, and then later as members of a family. First we're created, and we're created so we can begin to discover our purpose, and then as the Bible unfolds, it begins to unfold that God's purpose in creating us was that we might be a family of which he was the father. And that we would live with him and walk with him and acknowledge him and be acknowledged by him. There was no deal there. It was just relationship. And this is the profound relation, uh, uh, truth of Scripture that we're so prone to overlook is we're meant to go from glory to glory and faith to faith and strength to strength and a developing immersion into who we were created to be. I've always been thankful for King David in Scripture this morning because when it comes to the revelation of God as a father, David got it. David's life, of which I've preached numerous series in the last 47 years, is an interesting study. He is mentioned more in the Bible than any other character. David is mentioned more than any other character. He, there's something about him. His name just pops up over and over again. And in the closing book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation 22, 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Here's Jesus in Revelation wrapping up all things and revealing his connection to David. He is that deeply entwined in the story that is us this morning. There's something remarkable about, da about David. He is the one man in human history that seems to have had a breakthrough in the full understanding of God as a father. That while those around him were, were, were looking for this fearful deity to, to obey and humble themselves before, he's the, he's the guy that's, that he somehow sees through all that religious nonsense, and sees God as personal, tender, caring, and loving, and, and pursuing us in great mercy. There are few people in this room today who blew it as royally as David did. A murderer and an adulterer, a king who abused his authority in the extreme, and yet, in the middle of David's terrible shame, he doesn't withdraw from God in self-sufficiency. He doesn't try to atone for his own sin in some kind of self-inflicted punishment. He throws himself on the mercy of God. He falls towards God, and there was something extraordinary value in that, that God saw and moved God's heart. What moves God's heart is not your perfection, it's your willingness to come to him. David understood the heart of God. Even though he himself was this man of raw emotion and temperament. Read the Psalms. One day he's singing tender songs of praise to the Lord. 
The next year, he's invoking, you know, God, destroy my enemies. Smite their heads against the wall. And Jesus, you know, he's worship, bust into a worship song. He's a warrior and a man familiar with violence and passion and pride and vengeance. And yet in the midst of all that, there's his heart for God. How do you account for David's revelation in the Old Testament? How come, how did he come to this insight about the nature of God? Maybe it was in, maybe it was during the early years in what appears to be a tough family setting for David. David writes of himself in Psalms 51.5. It's a one that theologians have tossed about. And he says in verse 5, Psalms 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Theologians argue over, was this David, you know, speaking about the fall, universal sin? But David said, in sin my mother conceived. What does he mean? Is that a general statement or is it more specific? And I, I personally believe, if you study his life, that he was a little bit alienated from his brothers. He wasn't there in the lineup when the prophet Samuel came to anoint the new king. He's off by himself. He's not there with the family. They put him out there with the sheep. He's, a, he's on the low end of the ladder. And he may have been the child of another union his father had that we don't know about. He might not have been a full, a member in full standing in his father's household. And when you're like that, you always feel a little out. He wasn't a favored son. What's he doing out sleeping with the animals? the son of a landowner. And this would have produced a certain loneliness and a longing in David as a young man. And I don't know, but it may be that out there in the wilderness tending the flocks when he killed the lion and the bear, that he began to discover the warm, blanketing presence of God in his life. All by himself, starry sky, feeling the rejection of his own family, discovers this god of all comfort and protection. That his personal revelation becomes the basis of our understanding of what God's looking for in his relationship with us. That you would draw near to him because he will draw near to you. He's a merciful father. He's not some rule-obsessed deity hovering over your inconsistent life waiting to drop the hammer. This is the family picture the Bible presents to us this morning. A God who is a father and as such desires that we walk with him and learn from him and relate to him on those terms. Jesus came to bring us the revelation of the arrival of the kingdom of God. Our God is a king, a great king of authority and majesty, but he's a, he's a king who acts like a father. He's not a king who acts like earthly kings. He's a king who acts like a dad. And this is the concept God yearns for us to grasp. And it's so easy to miss. Because if you miss this, if you ignore this, if you only see him as authority and power, something will happen in you that will render you incapable of entering the kind of faith life he wants for you. And you will always come before him with a little bit of insecurity and always a little bit wondering, hey, you, you got to do more. you got to make him happy. I, I, Lord, I'm, I'm on the treadmill. Lord, I'm doing everything I, you know. Because you're never going to feel accepted because you only see him as authority and power not his father. 
Secondly, we're talking about the Father's hope. It's only two points in this sermon. You can take a deep breath. I just answered prayers right there. The Father's hope. I said all that to say this. Your life as a believer was meant to be one of growing understanding and depth and nearness to your heavenly Father. Period. Everything else will will find its own level. Your calling, your gifting, your personality type, blah, blah, blah. All of that Because you don't know who you are until you know him. He's the only one that can name you. Not the expectations of your church or any religious system you bow to, but that this year you might come to a place where you capture God's hope for you. He has a hope for you. This hope is linked to the freedom he gives you. No strings attached. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That's what it means. No strings attached. You're on your own. Make your own choices. You're free to do what you want to do. And you do. And he gives you the, that freedom so you can either choose to draw near to him or ignore him. You can choose to bring him into your life or keep him out of your life. And this hope is linked to your freedom. He gave you that freedom so that nothing would, there'd be no outside interference that would keep you from him. Anything keeping you from him would come from you because you're free. This hope is also linked to the things he allows to happen to you. Anybody here ever wonder about some of the things God's allowed to happen to you in your life? Anybody have any questions? Like, Lord, 2001, what was that about in your life or my life? Why did you let that happen? How could you let that happen? Anybody here ever wonder about those things? And why during some of your most difficult seasons, some of the driest seasons, some of the the hardest times, most painful times, that that's when you felt incredibly alone? If we're honest, we have questions. Why was I allowed to make decisions that could severely damage me? Why would you not keep me from that? You ever hear anything? Well, if the Lord doesn't want me to do that, he'll stop me. You're an idiot. In Jesus' name. <laughs> Why does he stop me? Because you're free. You're a sovereign individual created by God in his image. Why are we allowed to go through things that wound us? And wound us for years. And have these, 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 these pockmarks of despair in our spirits that just rise up from time to time. Why did you let that happen to me so that I became like this? Why didn't you step, step and stop some of these horrible choices I made? 
I don't have a, a long answer. I have a short answer. I think God has allowed the things that have happened to you and to me so that out of the ashes of those wrong choices and attitudes, you'd still choose him. It's standing on the foundation of a home and a life burnt to nothing, all the wood, hay, and stubble completely consumed, nothing left but the things of value, that having lost everything and seeing nothing in the future, you would realize, you know what? I still love you. I still trust you. I still know that you hold me in the palm of your hand and you've not forgotten me and I'm not forgetting you. That's what he wants. Not these conditional love and make a deal love and, and uh, well, Lord, if you do this for me, perhaps I'll come to church more than once a week. Maybe I'll read my Bible this year. God knows that the decisions that reflect reality and authentic love are those that are birthed out of the fire and the ashes, folks. We choose to love him because we know he first loved us. That God's hope for each of us in this room this morning is that regardless of what's happening in your life, you would still willingly, lovingly, without under no pressure or fear, choose him. Somewhere in the heart of God, I believe, is a passion not simply to see us bow our knee before his throne and submit to his authority, which for many believers is all they know of God but to see us fall into his arms like prodigal sons and daughters and have him embrace us and kiss our neck and welcome us home. In the book of Hosea, the last couple of years, the Lord took me into this book. I was living in Palm Springs, California. Sweet weather. <laughs> and the pandemic hit. People were scared and couldn't get food and things and shelves were empty. First time in my life I'd ever seen anything like it. Things that our parents and grandparents saw. And in morning devotions, I would, found myself up at the ungodly hours of 4.15 and 4.30 for weeks. Reading in through the scripture and coming into the book of Hosea. And so much more here than I'm going to talk about today. But there is a picture of God's heart in Hosea that's unlike any other in the scripture. A picture of his heart for us. And us being unfaithful wives. Us being vow breakers and truce breakers. Unable to remain in fidelity. The scriptures, as you know, are full of metaphors for the relationship between God and his people. You can study these for years, sheep to shepherd, vine to vine dresser, refiner to gold. God's the refiner, where the gold, what's the relationship? God's the, God's the shepherd, where the sheep, he's the vine dresser, where the vine. The, all those are, re, are metaphors of relationship in the gospels. Jesus calls us friends. Called his disciples friends. In the Old Testament, he's the mother in Israel. The metaphor of the mother heart of God as a hen gathers her chicks, Jesus said, so often I would have gathered you. There's these, all these metaphors and pictures. But in Hosea, it is the metaphor of marriage. 
Marriage is the most deep relationship we understand on a human level. The most intimate relationship we understand on a human level. It's nothing deeper. And Hosea was a man chosen by God to go out and marry a prostitute and conceived by her children that would be given prophetic names. And his life would be a living message to God's people. Hosea was to live out an example and a picture play of God's heart for us. It is a raw book. It's a vulnerable book. And it's one of the most vulnerable because the one in Hosea who's the most vulnerable is God. God has made himself vulnerable in that book. Because he's revealing and exposing his heart and what he feels towards us. And the whole message of the strange book is God giving us a glimpse into what his ultimate desire is. And it's not just friendship. And it's not just parental love of mother and father. It's not just kings and servants. But it's the love of marriage. It's the intimate, deep, two becoming one. It's the great romance. In Hosea chapter 2, God is pronouncing a judgment on his unfaithful people. And at the same time, he's announcing an ultimate desire for them if they will choose him. It's a, it's a beautiful book. It's full of judgment, and then it's full of redemption. And, and he says in Hosea chapter 2, verse 13, I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went out to her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. This is the scripture God gave me at the start of the pandemic for the church. Therefore, I'm going to allure her and I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I'm going to take my bride into the wilderness, into a place of separation and isolation, and not to hurt her, but so I can talk to her. Because maybe she'll listen to me in the crisis that's at hand. In the, in the shortage of goods, in the, in the, in the fear of the disease and death. Maybe in the wilderness she'll listen to me. I'm, gonna, I'm not bringing her out there to hurt her. I want to talk to her. I'm going to allure her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her back her vineyards. And I will make the valley of Achor, which is trouble and affliction, a door of hope. I'll make the place of affliction a place of hope. And there she'll respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of Baal from her lips, and no longer will their names be involved. You're looking at a major relationship transition here. No longer master and servant, but now husband. We're going to a new level. Many Christians never transition from any level other than he's the king. Better obey him because he really gets angry sometimes. And you never move beyond that. You never get past that. And that is used as that's the carrot on the, that's the whip that you get to keep you being a Christian. But he's trying to take you on to another level. Deeper than anything you've ever known before. I don't know how you perceive your relationship with God. You think his intention for you is this stoic, deadpan, emotionless, I serve the king of the universe. I'm deeply moved by him. Twice a year. 
<laughs> as opposed to a daily, fresh, invigorating, invading, powerful, overwhelming presence that sometimes just leaves you in tears because he's so amazingly good and desirous of revealing himself to you in ways you've never dreamed of. Happy New Year. The ultimate heart of God is you come to know him in a deeper way. What's strange to me as a man is how odd this can make us feel. We're comfortable bowing before a great throne, submitting to the king of the universe. It just seems right. We can even handle the love of a father once we get past some of our own caveats. But I think sometimes we've been so wounded by sin that we're semi-embarrassed at the idea of God is the lover of my soul. <laughs> it's funny how men, Christian men, are so afraid of any kind of, even raising their hands. Oh my God, what's coming over me? You remind me of that movie, uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Where the two guys, Steve Martin and Candy, Joe Candy, remember they're, they're kind of stuck together and they have to sleep in the same room, the same bed? And they wake up in the morning and they're kind of spooning and he goes, oh man, that pillow, that's not a pillow! He says, and they jump out of bed, oh, how about those bears? Uh, yeah, Minnesota Vikings. Because we're embarrassed by Paris, certain levels of intimacy. Ah! And yet here's God trying to take Christian men and women into a level that is like marriage. When we read the words of 1 John that say God is love, they can become just so much verbiage to us. They don't really mean anything to us. But what John was saying has deep ramifications. He's saying that every type and variety of love that exists in, the, in, the, in, in all of creation begins and comes from God. The thing we call family is rooted in the Trinity. God in perfect relationship and unity with himself. All the kinds of love we get little glimpses of in this life. Love, sacrificial love, paternal love, intellectual affinity, romantic love, intimacy has always existed in the fullness of the Trinity. God's great hope is that we grow up to come to him and love him and that we grow up, as Ephesians says, into him. Because this whole thing is a love story. It's not a tragedy. It is a little comedy. <laughs> but it's a love story. Let the musicians to come while I wrap this up. Oh, I'm killing it. As I said at the beginning, when I got the call yesterday, <laughs> wasn't planning on preaching. I was, is in my, I was in my stretchy pants all day yesterday. <laughs> never, never took them off. Just hung them on the hook. So I'll be back. How many ever done that? <laughs> Realize it's two o'clock. I'm in my stretchy pants still. I'm retired, what can I tell you? But I got the call, and I just felt like 
what was on my heart I wanted to preach was what God's original intent and desire for us as Christians in Life Community Church is. Why are we here? Why do we keep doing this? We're not here to be an extension of his government or some army of spiritual warriors or workforce of willing servants. But we're here to come through an ongoing process of maturity into an incredible love relationship for which marriage is our closest reference point. But this is not always an easy journey. Because very often in the midst of our lives, beaten by many blows and hurt by disappointments, we can lose sight of the most essential reality of being Christians. I've been a pastor many years, and I can tell you that often people lose sight of God while serving God. They lose sight of Him while working for Him. Serving in His church, alongside His people, and miss Him. People go through enormous pain in spiritual communities. Trust me in that. We have high expectations of being well served by our friendships in the body of Christ. And because of those high expectations, our disappointments and bitterness are just as low. But the real source of our pain, if you've been hurt in church, you've been hurt by people in church, the real source is you've taken your eyes off the lover of your soul. You've taken your eyes off Jesus. You've put them on religious institutions and blame them for where you're at. They used to get so tired of people saying, I'm not fed. I wasn't being fed there. We couldn't have fed you with a shovel. <laughs> Your heart was so hard. And you become so people focused. And you were, you were like a burn victim walking around. And anybody said anything to you, instantly offended find another church. Well, go ahead. There's a lot of them out there. But you took your eyes off the, you took your eyes off the goal, man. You took your eyes off why we're even here. You took your eyes off Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I learned that as brand new convert. Can I tell you something? It's all about Jesus. It's all about you and God coming closer. It's all about you shutting off all these other distractions that you're looking to for help. Hosea 2 verse 5 says, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my other lovers who give me my bread, my water, my wool, my linen, my oil, and my drink. We can become like these people who though we're God's people, we have other lovers who we think can meet our needs. They give us our bread, our water, our wool, and then I, wor I worship God intermittently. And our greatest failure is to look for sources outside of God. When he wants to be your sole resource, he's the source. And he'll lead you to the resource. But he's the source. Everything that comes from him is bottled water from the source. That's a resource from the source. It's been resourced. Whether we're looking for sinful, looking to sinful things, or secular things, or even spiritual things, 
The very essence of sin is it destroys intimacy, destroys nearness, whatever we put before God. This is what I want to do this morning. I want to stop at this point, and I ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads right where you're sitting. And ask yourself a question this morning, January 2nd, 2022. Here's the question. Which direction is my relationship with God headed? Which direction is my relationship with God headed? All relationships are either converging or diverging. You're either coming closer or you're coming apart. Where are you looking for satisfaction? Where are you looking for sustenance? Do you have other lovers? How do you see God this morning? A great king demanding your submission or a merciful father desiring your heart? And have you ever for one moment caught the pull of the great romance that is God's love for you? He wants your heart, not just your obedience. Revelations 4.11 Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were created. God will never force nor frighten you into loving him. You must choose. And God is calling us to a new level this year. A new level in your walk. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you this morning, first of all, for your word which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you for the people that have gathered here this morning that have taken the time to come and hear your word to their hearts. And having heard it, Lord, we yield to it. For your words are spirit and your words are life. They're not just history. They're not just a record of what happened in the past. Their invitation to the ultimate reality, which is to know our Creator God through His Son, Jesus Christ. I pray for those this morning that might not know Him, those watching online or those in the room that you don't know Him, that this morning you'd yield to Him, you'd surrender to Him. I pray for them right now, Father, let the Holy Spirit draw the lost to the place of being found confessing him as Lord and Savior. Touch the rest of us this year, Lord, that know you. Lord, take us to that other level. Move us beyond, Lord, where we've been to where you'd have us be. We give you all the praise and all the glory this morning in Jesus' name. We all say together, amen.